0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The latest World Health Organization data shows the Ebola epidemic has so far killed more than 8,000 people of the 21,000 or so people known to be infected worldwide. The vast majority of those cases and deaths, of course, are in Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia. In the fall, we got an update. While the crisis was in its highest stage, we talked with Ann Norman, who is a former Cache Valley resident and is chairman of the board for Shine On Sierra Leone. It's a nonprofit organization which builds and rebuilds schools in Sierra Leone. She's been appointed to the presidential task force there and has been involved in the education campaign for people in rural areas in Sierra Leone to combat uh, Ebola. And so we welcome back Ann Norman to the program. Welcome back. Hi. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we, also, for
1: having
0: me. we also welcome in uh, Jay Jacobson. He's a medical doctor, Professor Emeritus in the Divisions of Medical Ethics and Humanities and Infectious Disease at the University of Utah School of Medicine and Intermountain Medical Center. Last week, he gave a talk to the humanists of Utah about Ebola infections and issues related to ethics of treatment, such as who should receive treatment, if and when we can devise any treatment beyond supportive therapy. Dr. Jacobson, welcome to the program.
2: Uh, thanks very much. We
0: appreciate you uh, being with us. Let me let me begin with you, Dr. Jacobson. This is uh, it's. I don't want to be alarmist, and and it looks like thankfully the the, the crisis has subsided somewhat, and and this is colored by the fact that I've been reading a history of the 14th century, which of course includes the Black Death, the bubonic plague, where estimates are a, a third of of the world essentially died from from this plague. Uh, but the numbers in Ebola, at least in this case, are, are pretty scary. The, the, the death rate once you got infected was, is pretty scary, and and kind of goes counter to what we, I guess, feel like we can do with modern medicine.
2: Well, I think we've made lots and lots of progress that gives us the impression that we can handle almost anything, but of course that's not true. Um, and it depends a lot on which diseases you're talking about. There are many... Uh, Uh, Malignant diseases, for example, where our ability to help is very limited, and uh, it's only relatively recently that we've actually had very good treatments uh, for viral diseases. You may want to recall that uh, things that we've almost eliminated, things like measles and some things that we have, like smallpox, uh, we did through prevention, not through treatment. So Ebola represents, again, a viral disease for which we don't yet have a prevention. We're on the threshold of that. And we don't have very good specific treatment. But we do have treatments that support people uh, for diseases that we don't have cures for. And in many cases, they recover.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I, I, I haven't thought that way, that, that a lot of those diseases we, uh, we stamped out are reduced through prevention and not through cure.
2: That's precisely right, and prevention of all kinds, some very, very simple uh, things like being careful about the water we drink, uh, being careful to wash our hands after contact, Uh, and then one step above that would be separating ourselves physically uh, from people with transmissible diseases. Every single one of those uh, has a very good track record of being quite effective, and I think you can think of those as control measures. So there are many diseases that we manage to control, particularly in the United States and in other developed countries, uh, which can be very difficult to manage in other parts of the world. And once again, Ebola is a very good example of that.
0: We'll return to these issues. Very interesting. Uh, let me turn to Ann Norman. So we talked with you in the fall, I think it was September, October, kind of the height of this, this uh uh, thing and and you of course know many people in Sierra Leone and uh, very distressing to you what uh, what's the situation now
1: um the situation is a bit different when we spoke last time the international community was just starting to really truly engage to help fight this and the engagement has been fantastic um, in the areas that were ground zero back in September they've They've had, they've seen a lot of progress there. The cases are subsiding, but the challenge now is it's entered the capital city Freetown and an area called Port Loco, which is in the north, I guess, west corner of the country. And the cases there have escalated. And, And as you know, the population center is in Freetown. So we've seen a lot more cases and a lot more deaths simply because it's in a greater it's in a greater center of population.
0: Uh, do you? i would ask you then. And I'll ask you again now. Uh, do, do you? Do you know people who have who have died, who've been
1: affected? I do. I mm-hmm. do. Um, I know quite a few people that have died, and a few, oh gosh, maybe a month, maybe a month, month and a half ago it became, you know, it's been real to me and it's hit home the entire time because I have known friends and, you know, most of the friends that had passed away were medical people. So you can expect that. But about a month ago, somewhere in December, we had two friends, one that was the president of one of the biggest banks there and another gentleman who was the commissioner of the media commission, so kind of, I don't know what the equivalent would be here, but he regulates, like, freedom of the press, and I worked with, both of them are very good friends, and that gentleman, I was instrumental in placing him in that position when I was there uh, post-conflict after the war, and these are people, and this may sound harsh, but up until now, it's kind of been a disease of poverty and circumstance, right? So if you're out in the countryside and you don't have the means to fight this and you don't have access to a hospital or you don't have money to buy medicine, well, those people have suffered a lot. But the people in this other class of society that have good jobs, that can go to the hospital, that have money, they died. And that that really hit home to me because these are two gentlemen that don't fit that mold at all. And I started to get really scared, very, very scared for many of my friends and family that I have there and it's it's real. It's a very real thing, and it is no respecter of persons at all. Hmm.
0: What's well, the situation right now in Sierra Leone? The cases, I think, have slowed down significantly.
1: Um, no, they haven't. In some oh, areas, they okay. have, but in other areas, they have not. Again, like I say, in Freetown and Port Loco, they're, they're still really challenging, and the cases are on the rise, but in other areas of the country, they're on the decrease. In general, it's on the decline. Um, and they're working closely now, way better with the CDC and with the international community, as I said. Um, so supplies are getting in, and knowledge is being transferred better, and they're able to capture data a little bit better to get some real numbers and what's actually happening. So we've seen a lot of progress there.
0: And my impression might come uh, from the, the fact the media you know, has, has moved on in large uh-huh. measure, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, there are yeah. other stories. And uh, once the crisis sort of peaks, uh, you know, the media moves on. Uh, Dr. Mm-hmm. Jacobson, I wonder, uh, as Ann Norman made reference to um medical people are, are on the front lines in, in, a, in a situation like this. And on a personal level, I guess that's, I guess that's just part of the medical profession.
2: Well, it's, it's a part of part of the medical profession. I think you have a lot of physicians around the world who are not taking care of Ebola patients. Um, what I think is particularly interesting about this outbreak is that we've exhausted uh, a lot of the physicians who might have been considered frontline in the West African countries where the outbreak struck. Um, as Ann pointed out, many many of the early deaths actually were in health providers, particularly nurses. Uh, taking care of patients there so the people taking care of people there now are uh, almost all volunteers or people who work with agencies who can be called on in uh, situations like this, the World Health Organization, the CDC and I think that's uh, that's really notable um, while I think the medical profession in general has made a lot of progress over time and does things better today than we have before. These are unusual individuals Uh, who have made a personal choice, in many cases, a personal sacrifice to give up things in the United States, including uh, some aspects of their safety, to take care of people, which is their personal mission. Um, I think one thing that is notable here is that the world was a little slow to respond. Uh, So I don't think I'm so proud of the world's involvement, particularly the medical profession, uh, in organized uh, groups. But I'm very impressed by what volunteer groups did early on and very happy to see now that there's a much more concerted, organized effort.
0: I'm interested in lessons learned. And so there's one lesson, uh, the, the the I guess, governmental organizations beyond volunteer organizations should go in faster, something like this will happen again?
2: Well, I, I you know, I'm not sure that lesson has yet been learned. I think we have crisis after crisis, whether it's a famine, a disease outbreak, or... Uh, terrible conditions on the ground where the world may not step in as quickly as could be helpful. Um, And and again, the details are very important. Sometimes an earthquake uh, mobilizes more help in a short time than, say, a famine, which continues for a very, very long time, or even something as awful as genocide, another problem that occurred in Africa, where. I think uh, the world's involvement was notable by its absence.
0: and Norman, do you do you think the response was slow? Do you think a lesson we should learn is faster response?
1: I do. I completely agree with everything he said it It was slow and it it was shamefully slow. on behalf of the diplomatic community. The, and, I, and I agree with him. The volunteers should be commended because they were not slow, and they didn't have to do this. And it was, it has been a very great sacrifice for some of them, many of them their lives. And the, the, the religious groups and the volunteer communities that are over there that have been since the get-go are really to be commended. George Soros was there in March, and he's been quite engaged in Sierra Leone since the aftermath of the war. And he should be given the Nobel Peace Prize because he was there on the ground in March, built a hospital in Kenema at Ground Zero, and was all over this shouting at everyone else, help, 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 this is going to get really bad. And unfortunately, no one seriously listened, including the CDC, until the end of August when they said, oh, shoot, this is going to get really bad. Oh, shoot, it is. So it's been a challenge. The lesson learned, there's two lessons learned, and this is—it's an interesting discussion that that you ask that because right now internal to the country we're having this discussion as well. What can we do to 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 see that these kinds of things don't happen again? Because if it's not Ebola, it's dengue fever, or it's something else. So we don't even know. This is a hotbed of these kinds of diseases and. As the doctor pointed out, genocide can happen, conflicts can arise. So how do we get better prepared for a crisis? And that's a national conversation that's going, that's ongoing right now. And one of the keys is better education. We have to sit, set up a system to communicate and educate quicker and, and better than has ever happened in that region before. And one of the things that's different from when we spoke in September until now if you remember, my, my role there is part of the education campaign, the communication campaign, and we were focused on how to not get Ebola, how to protect yourself back in September. Well, that conversation has largely changed, and now it's about taking care of Ebola patients in your home. What do you do? So even that national conversation, because there aren't enough hospital beds, there aren't enough health care workers, you have to take this into your own hands to a certain extent, and how do you do that?
0: We're going to take a break when we come back more with Ann Norman who is a former Cache Valley resident. Uh, She's chairman of the board for Shine On Sierra Leone. It's a nonprofit organization which builds and rebuilds schools in Sierra Leone. And uh, she's been involved in Sierra Leone with an education campaign for people in rural areas. She just made reference to that. We'll we'll follow up with more of that. We're also talking with uh, Jay Jacobson. He's a medical doctor and professor emeritus in the Divisions of Medical Ethics and Humanities and Infectious Disease at the University of Utah School of Medicine and Intermountain Medical Center. And he spoke recently on the ethics of treatment regarding ebola we'll get into that topic in a deeper manner as well before we take a break just want to alert you to uh, some programs coming up tomorrow we're going to have some fun with paula poundstone a stand-up comedian and uh, uh, member of the panel of wait wait don't tell me she's coming to logan for uh, an appearance and she'll be my guest for the hour on access utah tomorrow then on wednesday We're going to talk about Hector Tobar's book, Deep Down Dark. That's the morning edition book club book for this month. And Utah Public Radio has formed a UPR chapter of that book club. We encourage you to read the book, think about issues of mining, which, of course, affect us in Utah. And go to our website, upr.org, and then join us for a discussion on Wednesday. More following the break.
3: Celebrate your relationship to UPR by submitting your artistic creations at upr.org for possible inclusion on the next UPR coffee mug. Identify Utah Public Radio with your design and let your imagination wander where it may. The winning entry will be selected by our listeners and imprinted on the Spring 2015 membership mug for all to see. For ideas or for more information, just go to upr.org. The entry deadline is Monday, January 26 at 10 a.m. Have you ever wondered what the future will look like?
2: Genomics will ultimately cure cancer.
0: I like to call this body 3.0. You'll buy GPS dots in bulk. Spare
3: living parts fully integrate back into the body.
2: Generations after us say how ridiculous it was that humans were driving cars.
4: I'm
3: Guy Raz. Join me each week as we look into the future on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Monday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
0: You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. You're welcome to join this conversation on Ebola lessons learned. And the ethics of Ebola, the current situation in Sierra Leone. We're talking with Ann Norman, chairman of the board for Shine On Sierra Leone, a nonprofit organization which builds and rebuilds schools in Sierra Leone. She's on the presidential task force there and is involved in the education campaign for people in rural areas in Sierra Leone to combat Ebola. And uh, they're in a discussion in Sierra Leone right now, she says, of lessons learned and uh, how can we combat not only this, but dengue fever and other. Other diseases which will inevitably come. We're also talking with Jay Jacobson, who's a medical doctor and professor emeritus in the divisions of medical ethics and humanities and infectious disease at the University of Utah School of Medicine and Intermountain Medical Center. Uh, he spoke recently on the ethics of treatment for Ebola who should receive it, if and when we can devise any treatment beyond uh, supportive therapy. And Dr. Jacobson, I'd like to uh, begin this segment of the program with that very uh, topic treatment. I, th- I think, uh, you know, anywhere you are, you get a disease with no known treatment, no known cure. It's very scary. But I think especially here in the U.S. and the West, where we, we see ourselves as very successful in, in combating these things, we see ourselves as, you know, antiseptic, if you will. And so when a disease uh, potentially comes to our shores, and uh, you know, that like uh, Ebola, I think that's that scares us a lot. And you saw that in the news media. Uh, debates on who to treat and how to treat treat them and the, the whole hubbub in uh, in texas or you know people in their moon suits and, uh, and getting infected anyway so i wonder if you talk about that first and then maybe treatment are, are we making any progress toward treatment or a cure
2: I, I think i may have heard at least seven questions Yeah, yes um, you did so uh, that's... you can tell me where you'd like to again <laughs>
0: yes uh, that's one of my failings um so uh, the uh, kind of this idea of hubris I'd I like to get at that in, in the West. I guess we think that we, we can handle anything, then we get something like Ebola.
2: Sure. Well, I, I think um, hubris or false pride or too much pride is a, a challenge for almost anyone, any career, any profession and medicine differently, I would say. Um, on the one hand, I think we can take justifiable pride in the way that we manage many diseases compared to the way they're managed in lesser developed countries. But I think we need to be humble there, too. Um, You know, Western medicine is very much shared uh, around a very large community, and there are other countries that do a much more efficient job of delivering medical care, but we do a very good job in the United States, and particularly for people who um, are well-educated and are uh, fortunate to have good access to medical care, but we do a pretty good job for everybody. For infectious diseases, um, there are countries in Europe, for example, who vaccinate virtually a hundred percent of their children by the age of two. Uh, we've never really managed that in this country, and we try to catch up and uh, protect children when they enter school at about age six and a half or seven. Um, In terms of treatment at uh, highly skilled facilities, and we're fortunate to have some of those in Utah, uh, the outcome for most serious diseases is really very good. And I think that um, in terms of how we're doing with Ebola, as the evidence is mounting, as as you and, and readers of the media and watchers of television would know. There are now a number of cases that have come to the United States, either already diagnosed or diagnosed here, and we've actually had one death uh, in that group, and depending upon how you count on that, could be one death in eight, for example, and that's a mortality rate of about 12.5%, which is a whole lot lower uh, than what we've seen in the developing world and especially in Africa. So I think... Maybe that's an example of the fact that uh, when, we, when we do take care of people, we do a very good job, and in terms of hubris or pride, maybe the mistake we made was thinking that we were ready to do that um, a little earlier than we were fully prepared, and I think that's the lesson of Dallas.
0: What is the difference, do you think? You mentioned 12.5% death rate. That's a whole lot better, you said. You know, it obviously is, than, than what's happening in West Africa uh, what's, what are some treatment lessons we ought to be, you know, I guess, exporting to West Africa? What, how, how better well, I think to treat- they're,
2: more, they're more than treatment lessons. I think this is partly an example of how public health works and what's necessary, and your other guest, Anne, may want to comment on that. For example, um, the majority of cases that uh, we've taken care of here have actually been in fairly sophisticated individuals often involved in healthcare themselves and to their credit they appeared very early for treatment so maybe that's lesson number one that appearing early for treatment especially when treatment is supportive care uh, is very very important Um, and that's not simple I mean that requires things like being well educated it also requires the ability to travel quickly uh, to a medical center and then it requires a medical center that has the means to provide supportive care. So all of those things are potentially available here. They're not all available in West Africa and Sierra Leone, but as Ann pointed out, that's one of the things that people are trying to do. Um, The other one, of course, is to have healthcare professionals uh, quite well prepared and skilled in providing the care that can be provided for these patients, and so that involves two separate skills, right? One is knowing what to do for the patient, and the second one, is knowing how to protect yourself. And again, I think Dallas is a very good example of all of those things. Unfortunately, in Dallas, uh, we stumbled um, on the medical side. We didn't recognize in a very busy, big city, how important it was to inquire where someone who had been, who had developed uh, symptoms, including fever, which can be many things, one of which is Ebola. So we made a mistake there by not admitting that patient early enough. Then the second level, I think, was about protection of healthcare personnel personnel, and putting on and taking off the kind of protective equipment we wear for Ebola is something we're not used to doing and it's very, very easy to make mistakes, um, especially when one is very stressed and anxious. And I think, uh, in retrospect, we think that's probably the case with the two nurses, health professionals who acquire disease. Um, In Dallas. And again, maybe one of the lessons would be that because of their concern and new knowledge of the disease, they both presented very early. They were under a lot of scrutiny and they presented early with symptoms and again, two wonderful examples of early treatment leading to survival.
0: Yeah, thankfully so. And Norman, I'm sure in Sierra Leone, you're you're talking about all of these issues, and 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 trying to make progress in all of the, what Dr. Jacobson just said.
1: Yeah, he's exactly right. I I echo everything Dr. Jacobson just said. It's you know we need to learn we need to learn from these lessons. We need to figure out how to to avoid a crisis like this going forward. And it's very challenging because we don't, the worlds aren't the same. It's there. We just, we don't have the communication facilities, we don't have the healthcare facilities, we don't have the money over there that you see in this part of the world, so they're in light the of challenges. It's easy to fix these things if you can throw tons of money at it, if you can throw television programs and radio and all of these things take for granted, but we can't always do that over there. So it complicates the challenges greatly and... To me, just the plain the, the, pri- the lack of primary facilities is what has actually escalated this crisis.
0: Hmm. What is needed right now? What would you know? What would the government say? Uh, you know, more infrastructure, more facilities. What, what do they need?
1: Definitely more hospital beds. There aren't enough. There still are not enough beds to treat the patients. There, there just isn't enough room to treat everyone who's getting sick. And again, the center of the disease has moved into the most concentrated population now, and there just aren't enough mm. facilities. There isn't enough of anything really. Medical workers are needed obviously because they they bless their hearts, there just aren't enough of them and and they're facing their own amount of Fatality, fatalities, and uh, just more resources.
0: What uh, are you still continuing your efforts in rural areas uh, to an education mm-hmm, campaign? Yeah. What uh, what form is that taking? What are you trying to teach people?
1: Um, basics of healthcare. When you get this, if you can stay hydrated in the beginning, what does that mean? Um, how do you do that? It has to be clean water, right? So we can't we can't stay hydrated with things that are gonna. Make you have cholera or battle something like that. Also, education on immune systems. Oh, it's interesting because people don't understand um, even that. They don't understand blood cells. They don't understand how bodies work. So there's just some basic health education going on about what what those things mean and why it's important to understand them. Because when your body is depleted and it can't fight, it's like pneumonia, right? usually you catch pneumonia when you've had something else because your body can't fight back. So some basic understanding of how things like that work. And then of course there's still the education going on of of how disease spreads and especially how this disease spreads and how important it is to to not touch dead bodies, to not touch people that are sick. If you're a if you're caring for someone that is that is sick, how do you protect yourself? Um Things like
0: that, and uh, we talked when we ta- talked last uh, several months ago about cultural practices. That's something that you have to educate people about. Some of the cultural practices in West Africa um, don't lend themselves to to the proper treatment. I guess here.
4: Uh
1: huh. Yeah, that's been that's been a tough one. People are very much um, way more on board with that now than they were back when we spoke earlier, simply because. They, I mean, after you see it so many times, you know that that's the culprit. We can't do this. So, I've I've heard people say, as uh, as sad as it is, very close friends, you know, who have elderly mothers and people that they're taking care of, and they've said, as sad as this is, and as much as I love my family, if, if we've all decided and we've kind of made a family pact that if one of us gets sick and dies. We won't have a funeral. We won't touch that body. We'll stay away from the person that was sick, even if it's my mom. And that—can you imagine? Yeah, that can you imagine, yeah, can you imagine be having hard. that discussion with your mother?
0: Yeah, that—that that would be heartbreaking.
1: Right, it yeah. is, yeah. and and it's and and just so matter of fact, this is how it is. And if I. If one of us is to remain and and carry on our family lineage even, that's what we have to do. No funeral. We can't touch you. We can't if you get sick, you're on your own. Hmm. It's just it's so sad.
0: So people are making these packs, I guess. They they want to preserve at least some of the family. Okay. Uh, if you'd like to join the conversation, we're talking about Ebola. We're getting an update on it. Uh, former cash builder, isn't Ann Norman is chairman of the board for Shine On Sierra Leone. It's a nonprofit which builds and rebuilds schools in Sierra Leone. She's on the presidential task force there and is involved in an education campaign about Ebola. Uh, Jay Jacobson is professor emeritus in the divisions of medical ethics and humanities and infectious disease at the University of Utah School of Medicine and Intermountain Medical Healthcare. He spoke recently on uh, ethics of uh, Ebola. You can join us at one eight hundred. 826-1495 1-800-826-1495 Our email is upraccess@gmail.com. at gmail.com at gmail.com You can join us on Twitter at Utah Public Radio as well. Uh, so here is a question from Gary in Logan. Thanks for this, Gary. He says How can people here in the U.S. help with the, the medical supplies needed for the victims of Ebola? What organizations do your guests trust to do the job? Let me start on this with Ann Norman.
1: Um, That's a very good question. And there are a couple of NGOs um, that you can... The very best thing is to give money, if you can, to NGOs who are handling medical supplies and getting things in the country because it's very difficult to just send things and get them through customs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So I would find an NGO. Um, There's one that I really like, the gosh, and now the name flips me, um, the Association for Sustainable Human Development, and they've been around for a while, and they handle crises like these, and they, they're able to send in a lot of medical supplies and things like that. So I would give to an organization like that, um, that that's, that's battling this.
0: All right. Uh, send money. That's, uh, of course, most easily used, and uh, perhaps check out the Association for Sustainable Development or a or like organization. Dr. Jacobson, I'd, I wonder your answer to this question. Is there a NGO you particularly trust or uh, a way to help, you would suggest?
2: Well, I think um, ways not to help. Um, I think Ann is right. I think that uh, even large organizations who tried to ship things to the West African countries, sadly, Uh, Some of the most needed supplies for personal protective equipment have been hung up for weeks to months uh, in the ports, as she says, uh, I think diplomatically, because of uh, customs regulations. So I think that's somewhat unreliable. I think that um, the uh, NGOs are thinking hard about this and making the point of bringing supplies with them. Uh, when they go to Africa, and of course they need money to do that, so I think she's right about that. Uh, the group that I'm most aware of, as I said earlier, would be the volunteer clinician groups like Doctors Without Borders, Medicine Sans Frontieres, um, and I think contributions to them are very likely to turn into help, not only for this outbreak, uh, but for future outbreaks. This is not the last time uh, there will be an emerging disease uh, that affects lots of people in developing parts of the world.
0: Uh just looked it up, Ann, at worldsustainable.org is the place. It's World Organis- Association for Sustainable Development. Uh, Does that sound like the one you're talking about?
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay,
0: we'll, we'll get that up on our uh, website. We'll also get Doctors Without Borders as well. Uh, some, some good suggestions. I would
1: also like to say, Dr. Jacobson is right. This is not the, the last time we're going to see an outbreak of something. And in the last 10 years that I've been there, it's not been Ebola, but I've seen cholera outbreaks that have been devastating. And it, the same thing. They come, something happens, cholera breaks out, and it's very hard to contain it. Just because of this, the, for the very same reasons, it's been hard to contain Ebola. And there's, there's, there's going to be another one. There will be. So everyone needs to get prepared. And helping in those efforts is also useful. How can you help with education efforts in these areas as well as globally? How do we prepare ourselves? We're not immune to these things either. What do we need to know to protect ourselves, especially if you travel
0: yeah, that, and I think that's a good thing for us to remember. This, this, this won't be the last, will it? We need to prepare, and we need to prepare ourselves as well. Yeah, uh, Dr. Jacobson, I wonder um, if you could, at this point, take me inside a couple of the issues uh, that are foremost in your mind regarding ethics of treatment. Very interesting that you you talked about this last week to the uh, human humanists of Utah. Uh, I'm interested to to learn a bit about the ethics of of treatment.
2: Well, I understand and I appreciate Ann's point about um, the the crisis in a way that the Africans are feeling between very close and personal care of their sick relatives, including relatives who die, and then this new idea that it's sort of a uh, hands-off, no-contact policy. That's absolutely tragic and disturbing in terms of how um, families are responding. The, the side that, that I have to pay attention to is how professionals respond. And it's a repeated story. Um, anytime, and you've learned about it yourself, when you read about the plague in the Middle Ages, you know that among the people who fled, there were many uh, medical people also. So new diseases that can be fatal are very frightening to everybody. And I think health professionals are in a tough spot of, on the one hand, being obliged uh, to take care of people, which means putting oneself at risk, and then thinking about their own safety and perhaps the safety of their families. So each time this happens, it's very difficult. However, and very fortunately, um, as it happens over time, we tend to learn from prior experiences. And even in um, a very short time, uh, you and your listeners have Um, been thinking and exposed to the the pattern of behavior we've seen in the AIDS epidemic, the SARS epidemic, the concerns about avian flu, and now Ebola. And I think that this one is somewhat tempered by the fact that we do have an understanding of how diseases are transmitted and, most importantly, how we can protect ourselves. I think the way we think about professional ethics here is that physicians do have a responsibility, as do other healthcare providers, to take care of sick people. But that obligation or expectation is tempered by the magnitude of the risk that's involved. And maybe the best way to think about it is to think about uh, other professions that must take risk, like policemen and firemen. And in the case of firemen, we do see very brave and courageous firemen taking risk uh, to save lives but there's a level of risk that we don't expect them to take, and in fact, uh, uh, a proper fire procedure would be not to enter a building that's about to collapse, and the reason would be that it's it's futile. It would not accomplish the saving of the lives inside, and it might well cost the additional lives of people who rushed in in an effort to save. So we try to do that same balance, and Ebola I think has great evidence now that when physicians and clinicians are given proper protective equipment, their risk of acquiring the disease is really quite low. And by quite low, I mean less than 1%. And fortunately, we've also learned that in the rare cases that might occur, if treatment is administered early, survival is more the rule than the exception. So I think knowing that, it's not unreasonable now. To talk about expecting healthcare providers to take care of patients with communicable diseases like Ebola.
0: Yeah, I, I, all this resonates with with me at least. I if I put myself in the shoes of medical professionals, uh, and when this was at its height, you know, I'd ask myself, would would I go? You know, if I had medical skills, would would I put well, myself in harm's I think it's a very
2: way, you know? fair question. And again, we're human beings, like uh, like all other human beings, and. Recent experience with something like SARS uh, revealed that some clinicians decided not to go to work uh, in the face of that epidemic, and others, again, I think very responsibly did so, and there were healthcare providers who became sick. So the risk can be very real. A couple of points that need to be made quickly here. Number one, SARS was a brand new disease, one that we had no experience with at all. Ebola has been occurring in Africa since 1976, and there are over 30 outbreaks that have already occurred, and we've learned from every one of them about how the disease is transmissible, transmitted, and how transmissible it is. And I would just contrast that with some other diseases. SARS would be a good example, as would avian flu. Both of those can be transmitted through the air. So simply being close to someone with that kind of disease, can be very risky. That's not the case with Ebola, and the numbers actually bear that out. For example, she was talking, and was talking about household contacts, people who take care of people in their home uh, who are very sick with the disease, perhaps about to die, it's about 30% of those who then acquire infection. And again, I'll just underline that. So it's about 70% who do not. Um, People who are in the same household as people with disease but have no physical contact have a 0% risk of transmission. So I think the lessons there, even in the household, are that if one is careful and either has no contact or is very careful about personal hygiene and perhaps makes use of some protective equipment, the risk can be so much lower
0: we we'll turn to, uh, to. We're going to take a break shortly, but I want to turn back to Ann Norman. Uh, this this discussion on ethics, the ethics of uh, the obligation to treat, uh, I must really hit home with you because, uh, you, as you were saying, you, I think you know some medical people who've who've died.
1: Yeah, and it does hit home, and I, I think these people are amazing. I I think about that all the time. I mean, I'm I'm one of these people that has stayed away from the country. This is my home, and in January, I usually go there. I should be there right now, and I can't. And I'm in exile, essentially, and 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 I feel guilty about it because I think, gosh, there are all these people that it's not their home, and they're going and they're risking their lives, and here they are on the front lines, and I'm a big chicken sitting here in the U.S. talking, talking, and telling everyone what to do, but I'm not on, the, I'm not on the front lines, and so there's a bit of guilt that I deal with. But man, these people are legitimate heroes. And when when we saw the the lady in Maine that came back and she was put in a tent and quarantined, you know there was a period of time that we were treating these medical workers like criminals, and there was a period of time in the country where people that became sick, it was somehow their fault. There was some the just the tone of voice, the tone of voice and the way that we were talking about them. It was a like oh they're sick oh we're we're done with them and it was reminiscent of a little bit of aids you know you you saw this behavior happen until people realized oh my gosh there's many many aids cases that it's not the fault of these people and we have to do something with like this so it's the ethics of it it's just it's tough i i don't i don't know I'd, i i'm not a medical person i'm not in the medical profession i'm just a human being that has a family and a child that i love and I think about it from that perspective and I have no idea what the answers are. I just know it's very difficult.
0: Yeah, yeah, very difficult issues, and as you both mentioned, uh, there'll be something else coming down the road, too, so important to learn some lessons here. Let's take a break when we come back more with uh, Dr. Jacobson, uh, who's with uh, Professor Emeritus, Divisions of Medical Ethics and uh, Humanities and Infectious Disease at University of Utah School of Medicine, and Norman Chairman of the Board for Shine On Sierra Leone, a nonprofit organization which builds and rebuilds schools in Sierra Leone. She's on the presidential task force there and is involved in an education campaign for people in rural areas uh, there with recruitment. Regard to Ebola. You can join the program at 1 800 826 1495 or by email to upraccess at gmail.com and on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. More following the break.
3: Coming up, we'll visit one of the great European wintertime music festivals, Mozart Week, a big celebration every January in Mozart's hometown of Salzburg, Austria. The Vienna Philharmonic plays Mozart's Hoffner Serenade in concert in Salzburg. I'm Fred Child. Join me for the next performance today from APM. Monday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread in Logan. Open for breakfast Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and Saturdays at 8 a.m., offering a selection of French pastries and a variety of sweet and savory menu items. Details at crumbbrothers.com.
0: You're listening to Access Utah. Another five or six minutes left in the program. We're talking about Ebola. Getting an update, we're talking with Ann Norman, who's a former Cache Valley resident, chairman of the board for Shine On Sierra Leone, and uh, she's on the presidential task force there in Sierra Leone. Jay Jacobson is a medical doctor, professor emeritus in the divisions of medical ethics and humanities infectious disease at the University of Utah School of Medicine. Uh, Ann Norman, uh, just a very brief segment here. I'm, I'm curious what the discussions are in Sierra Leone I'm sure that the goal is um you know get get through this um and and get the cases down to zero and then and then uh, try to learn some lessons going forward,
1: yeah, a lot of lessons learned, a lot of still education on what to do how how to handle care in your home if someone is sick and you know also life has changed the public gatherings we're not there aren't any um the social life there, it's about people, right? It's—it's it's, People aren't engaging socially like they were, small groups. Um, you do a lot of entertaining in your home, invite people over, none of that's going on. And, of course, you don't touch anyone. No handshakes, no kissing, no nothing. This is a very touchy culture. You hold hands with people that are your friends. You walk down the street arm in arm. Um, none of that's going on. So there's been a cultural shift that I think won't shift back the way that it ever was because people are going to be afraid of this forevermore as they should be.
0: Hmm. And that's I mean, there's some sad aspects of that of course. Mm-hmm. A culture shift like that that you say do you think might be permanent?
1: Uh yeah. I mean it's like the French the French kiss on the cheeks. What what if this happened there? That would change forever. Mm-hmm. And it's it's very much that way.
0: We turn to Dr. Jacobson. Um, I wonder about, uh, I know there's a search for a vaccine, there's a search for treatment beyond supportive therapy. Do do you think we're going to be successful
2: there? I'm very, very optimistic. I think that um, that's one of the the comments, I think, about modern medicine, which is very different than the Middle Ages where we had plague, where we didn't fully understand uh, either what the cause of plague was, and as Ann pointed out, That wasn't the first time that people with disease were scapegoated and blamed and and made pariahs. So that kind of human behavior continues, but the the pace is very quick now. There are some agents that look very promising as vaccines that uh, look like they will go into trials in Africa within the next several months. So that's very promising. And I think uh, your listeners probably read that in the U.S., Um, Some of the patients were treated with um, antibody to Ebola, in some cases derived from the plasma of patients who had had this disease and who recovered. So that's another promising technique. And there are, in fact, some uh, antiviral agents and some antibodies produced um, artificially, uh, which have a lot of promise here. And then even without mentioning those wonderful, promising, innovative treatments, what we've learned here is that just supportive care, particularly repleting all the fluids and electrolytes that people learn uh, people lose with the severe uh, vomiting and diarrhea uh, that goes with this disease, that can be life-saving. So there's a lot of discussion, actually, and even an ethical debate about what should be done next in Africa, whether they should try and transition. Uh, to those techniques that we use routinely in the United States but which are not so available in Africa and using needles for example to give fluids has an additional risk of perhaps injuring health personnel so even that's not a simple uh, technique to apply but I'm really quite optimistic that with international help um, that care will improve and that we will see um, better medical tools develop out of this outbreak.
0: We are at the end of our discussion, uh, of course. Uh, so, and Norman, our, our our prayers, of course, will continue to go for the good people of Sierra Leone and Liberia and, and uh, Guinea. And uh, th- you. you'll you'll especially be in contact with uh, the people you know there, and uh, and doing all you can for them. So, uh, tell us again, World Association for Sustainable Development, uh, send and send money. That that'd be your suggestion.
1: Mhm. Yeah. And I, you know, and I will pass along the well wishes from Utah. Because I know great. when I was on the program last time, the outreach, the, the concern that after this program was overwhelming and it was very touching. And oh, that message will be passed on to everyone in the country.
0: Great. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. We, we, do, uh, we do very much uh, care about the people over there and, and hope that uh, this program will spur some additional attention and some aid there. So that's worldsustainable.org, that organization you're talking about. And, of course, your organization, uh, Shine On Sierra Leone. Check that out. And, Dr. Jacobson, thank you so much. And you're suggesting uh, send money to Doctors Without Borders. That's doctorswithoutborders.org.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Thanks, uh, Dr. Jakesman and Norman. It's been a good discussion, and uh, hopefully uh, we'll have... Good news, better news, uh, next time we uh, talk about this uh, this topic. Again, a reminder, we uh, are going to be talking with Paula Poundstone from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. She'll be on uh, tomorrow and on Wednesday. The UPR chapter of the Morning Edition Book Club will be discussing, hopefully with you, Hector Tobar's Deep Dark, Deep Down Dark, stories of 33 men buried in a Chilean mind and the miracle that set them free. Uh, we hope you join us tomorrow for Access Utah. Thanks for listening today.
1: Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education.
3: Shrimp in the desert landscape of Canyonlands National Park? Yep, you can find them. Fairy shrimp, when the rainy season arrives and turns dry, dusty potholes into water-filled rock basins brimming with life. A surprising array of creatures relies on these potholes for life, and one of the most curious is the fairy shrimp. These unique crustaceans are found in small potholes that dot sunstoned outcrops found in America's southwest. Their eggs maintain resilience during the dry season, and when spring rains arrive, the shrimp hatch. There are more than 300 varieties of fairy shrimp, the most common being the vernal pool fairy shrimp. These little guys measure between a half inch to one and a half inches long as adults. They can be found anywhere ephemeral pools are present, though the majority of their population resides in California and Oregon. Fairy shrimp vary in color depending on the menu found in their particular pool of residency, ranging from translucent to orange, even to blue. They also feature 11 pairs of legs to propel themselves upside down, or more scientifically, ventral side up. They also use these incredibly helpful legs to eat unicellular algae, ciliates, and bacteria by filter and suspension feeding methods. They filter feed by pumping water through filtration structures located in their multi-purpose legs, thus capturing the food. They also are adept at suspension feeding by plucking food floating in the water, again with their tentacle-like legs. They may also grab or scrape food from the surfaces of other things found in their vernal pool, such as sticks and rocks. But what's truly amazing is how fairy shrimp reproduce. They typically lay drought-tolerant eggs during the summer, then overwinter in the dried sediment on the pothole bottom and these eggs hatch in the spring when the potholes fill with rainwater. However, if drought sets in, eggs can be transferred to other pools by floating in gusts of wind or being carried by a particularly curious animal. These eggs are tough and can withstand varying temperatures, drought, and even the test of time. Eggs in laboratory settings have survived intact up to 15 years before hatching. Under the right conditions, you can observe fairy shrimp in Canyonlands, Arches, and Death Valley National Parks. Canyonlands and arches boast at least two species of fairy shrimp. The Packard fairy shrimp, also known as the rock pool fairy shrimp, or the Arizona fairy shrimp, and the Great Plains fairy shrimp. Fairy shrimp hatch in the spring, right after the potholes and vernal pools refill with water. So that will be your prime time to look for these interesting creatures. As travelers, you can do your part to help the fairy shrimp by simply leaving their vernal pools alone. Drinking water, stepping in the pools, or touching a pool can throw off the entire mini ecosystem located in this fascinating habitat. And remember, our fingers are very salty, so even if you're using a gentle touch, do not put your fingers in a vernal pool, as it just might raise the salinity and throw off the dissolved oxygen percentage needed for the fairy shrimp to survive. For National Parks Traveler, this is Kurt Repincheck.
1: Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu.
4: Hey, UPR listeners, this is Jennifer Pemberton, letting you know that the State Environmental Agency is proposing a seasonal wood-burning ban in seven northern Utah counties, and they're accepting public comment. The ban could have an effect on winter air quality in our communities, so we want to know how you think the ban would affect you and if you support it. You can attend one of the state air quality board's public hearings and share your thoughts. The meeting times are listed on our website. But we want to hear from you, too. Go to upr.org to submit your comments or tweet us at Utah Public Radio. Use the hashtag #BurnBan. You can post your thoughts on our Facebook page, too. And if you're at the Logan hearing on January 21st, I'll be there to talk to you in person. More information on the proposed burn ban and the meeting times is at our website, upr.org. Thanks. BBC.
3: BBC. Hello, I'm Rosakins Welcome to World Have Your Say. Coming up on Outlook after the news, the Somali journalist who witnessed the murder of his boss. Hello, I'm Steve Evans. Welcome to Business Daily. Coming up, the big fight. This is Owen Bennett-Jones with NewsHour. The BBC is your gateway to the world. And this is your BBC station. Monday through Saturday afternoons at 3 on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. Thank you for listening to
0: Access Utah today on Utah Public Radio, a service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University.